I'm Adrienne Lilly, and this is Pod Academy. Today, we're talking about copyright law, music, and appropriation. The first line in the paper is, what do Beethoven and public enemy have in common? <laughs> that was Fumi Arewa. She's a law professor at the University of California, Irvine School of Law, and holds a courtesy appointment in anthropology. As you can hear, she's also a trained singer. And what I just asked her was the first line of her 2006 paper, From J.C. Bach to Hip Hop, Musical Borrowing, Copyright and Cultural Context. What do Beethoven and Public Enemy have in common? (laughs) (laughs) I thought it it, it was a good hook. Well, they're both popular performers and composers, as I say, and they both are thought about as being transformative in terms of musical and composition and performance, Public Enemy was transformative from the perspective of hip-hop, and Beethoven was um, transformative from a classical music um, perspective, both copied and incorporated existing works of their own and others into their works. So it tells us that copying is a norm in creation, borrowing is a norm in creation. And I think in law we don't, in legal discussions and legal thinking about copyright and copying, we don't take sufficient account of that, of the fact that this is a norm in, in, in creation. Um, and we, in, and even though we, we might give acknowledgement to borrowing, the importance of borrowing historically remains unacknowledged to, 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 to too great a degree in legal commentary and in conceptions of how copyright law should apply to creative works. Fumi writes a lot about music and copyright law. And some of her articles include From J.C. Bach to Hip Hop, Copyright on Catfish Row, Musical Borrowing, Porgy and Bess, and Unfair Use. And she's currently writing a book about the influences of African-American music. Additional information and links to her work can be found at the Pod Academy website. Her work is largely about a bias within copyright law that fails to recognize the multiple and complex forms of creativity that exist in music. It's a bias that largely targets popular music and music that derives from African-American traditions. She talks about how a glorification of classical music and classical musicians might limit how copyright law addresses popular music today, and the failure to recognize appropriation or musical borrowing as a legitimate form of creativity. And she does this by dispelling a myth, not one about popular music, but one about the classical music tradition, a myth about the creative process that is responsible in part for so many of the assumptions that have led courts to rule against cases of musical borrowing. And it's a myth that reaches beyond music and beyond law and questions the very idea of originality. There's a conception that some types of music are more original than others. And I think we often make those determinations in a very decontextualized way. I mean, originality does not mean creation from from nothingness. Originality, I think, means it could mean that. I think that's not typically the case in music. Um, it could also mean reusing something in a very creative and innovative way. That also could be original. So I think originality should not be the opposite of copying, in a sense. Originality might involve copying. It might not involve copying. That depends on context. It depends on composer. It depends on genre. I think it depends on a lot of different factors. So I think one thing I would strongly push back against is is I think an underlying conception that conception that somehow copying 
isn't original because I think you have to look at how the copying occurs and what how it's used because copying can be incredibly original. Someone who who creates through borrowing can be enormously original and make us rethink assumptions we made and and rethink music in a really important way. This idea that musical creativity was a kind of divine inspiration by autonomous creators and artists or an act separate from culture and history and everyday influence is a notion that has not always existed. The way that musicians were understood changed dramatically in the 18th and 19th century, and before about 1800, musicians were considered craftsmen more than artists, and music was a ceremonial or ritualistic event. But that changed, and this change in the perception of the role of the musician largely followed technological developments in printing and later in recording. It also coincided with the developments of copyright law and the relatively new idea that intellectual and creative acts were a kind of property. During the 19th century, you saw the breakdown of the patronage system. You saw the emergence of the recognition of composer authority. Um, I think Lawrence Levine in his book, Highbrow Lowbrow, makes a point. At some points early on, um, composers weren't just so important. We saw an emerging centrality of the composer and increasing importance of the composer as being recognized as the authority and the authoritative source of the work. And that meant that people like performers couldn't really change things so much anymore, at least in the classical tradition. And that's what I want to emphasize, how these things are construed and and thought about vary among musical traditions. We started out by talking about some of the differences between the creative practice and the perceptions of the creative practice in law. Then, we discussed some of the contemporary issues, including the practice of musical borrowing, the role of estates, the length of copyright law, the issues of control and compensation, and some of the complexities of creativity. One of the things your paper talks a lot about is the difference between how the creative process in music is understood socially, legally, by an average person versus how it actually is in practice. Yes. It, it, you know, I think the thing I want to emphasize is that there are a lot of varieties of creativity in music, and there are a lot of different ways that people create. And I think sometimes in law, we take one modality of creation and take that as being the norm of creation. I think in law, if you were to interpret how people look at creation in law, the story would basically be, well, people create things and we know they borrow um, and there's sort of a general acknowledgement that borrowing happens, but not um, not really an internalization of what the implications of that borrowing happening really mean for how we think about music creation. So in a lot of legal cases, you'll see discussions that say, okay, and this comes out of copyright, um, that they'll basically say, you know, you, you basically can't copy. If you then go to the musicology literature and see how people in musicology think about borrowing, there are like 20 different words people use. People will talk about influence, they'll talk about borrowing. So there's a, there's a much broader range of ways they think about how musical works relate to each other. When we think about music and law, I think we tend to have a much more um, simple understanding and much more sort of either-or understanding about how, how copying is, plays a big role in music. And that's really important because I guess I, what I first wrote my first article on music it was called From J.C. Bach to Hip-Hop. And it talked about, it started out by talking about um, Johann Christian Bach, who was um, Johann Sebastian Bach's son. And he's a really important point in, in music law history because copyright originally applied to literary works. It applied to books. And he, he brought a case in England that established that the statute of Anne, the literary copyright, applied to music. And I think that was a really important point 
in the history of music and the history of law, music and law. However, I think one of the things that is pretty clear when we look at how copyright's been applied to music is that it's an uneasy application because music isn't really quite like literary works. Where the written word may paint a picture, the musical composition draws a map. Where they can both be intricate and precise, the performer, reader, or audience will inherently interpret them differently. What can be said with one may not be able to be said with the other. Today, protections in music include both this written expression, or the sheet music, which is often difficult for courts to interpret, and a separate protection for recorded material. And these rights are not always held by the same entity. Musical works are very different than literary works, and musical works often involve a lot of copying. So one of the points I make in my piece from J.C. Bach to Hip Hop is if we took the standards of how people create that are implicit in a lot of copyright law cases that basically say, you know, you shouldn't copy because that's really bad and that's a violation of copyright – most of what we consider to be great classical works couldn't have been created. I mean, a lot of a lot of the what we consider to be the greatest classical composers, Beethoven, Bach, Mozart, they copied extensively. They borrowed from other people. They borrowed from each other. You know, Brahms wrote something called Variation on the theme, Variations on a Theme of Haydn. So there was a, there's been a lot of borrowing in the classical tradition. And what my work points out is that we sort of had a shift in the late 19th century in in the classical music tradition that. Um, that where, where we had a lot of changes. We had improvisation leaving the tradition in most, except in some very limited avenues in the classical tradition. And you had a conception of creation that looks a lot, emerging in the classical tradition, that looks a lot like how we can conceptualize creativity and copyright. In your paper, you call this the museum music or museum. Yes, we think about it in yeah. the same way. So it's, it's almost like it's a piece of art in a museum, a piece of visual art in a museum where, you know, if we go to museums, we all know you can't touch the, the art. You can't go and sort of let me feel how the paint texture feels. I mean, that's just not acceptable for a lot of different reasons. It would damage the work. However, I think we've taken that sensibility and, and applied it in music to a significant degree, and copyright has embedded some of those assumptions. Now, if we were only dealing with classical music that is sort of a museum tradition, it wouldn't be probably so noticeable. But what I talk about in my work is during the course of the 19th century, and I'm actually writing a book about this, so it's great to talk about it right now. During the course of the um, late 19th and 20th century in the United States, we had the end of slavery in the United States, and you had increasingly the dissemination of African-American music in the United States and globally, and that's really what my, mu my book is focusing on, sort of looking at the dissemination of African-American music and the broader implications, business and legal implications of that. But as we had the dissemination of African-American music, you have a kind of musicality that very much embeds a lot of improvisation, a lot of repetition and revision. I think a lot of people writing about African-American liter literature um, have talked about this um, ethos of repetition and revision that's very prominent in a lot of forms of African-American music. And you have the spread globally of things like gospel music, blues music, jazz music, R&B. And I think one musicologist, um, Susan McClary, talks about how that those forms of music have become a dominant form of musical innovation in the course of the 20th century. So you have musical forms of musical creation that are clearly improvisatory, clearly involve repetition and revision, which means borrowing is really central to a lot of those forms. And what I argue in my work is that copyright, it's difficult. With copyright embedding the assumptions of a museum tradition, it's very difficult for copyright to fully embrace these these types of forms of creativity. So what I argue in my work is not that we should say that all creativity is one thing or another. We need to take better account of the broad spectrum of creativity 
in that some people may just do it sort of the more the museum way. Some people may be incredibly improvisatory and use a lot of borrowing, and we tend to penalize the people that do borrowing in, 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 in pretty serious ways, in ways that I think um, may impact musical creativity. Fumi's work centers around history and society, and the intersection of different musical traditions, as well as the myth of creation that we've already discussed. I asked her to talk a little bit more about how these ideas interplay. There's this sort of European traditional uh, music history that we all have this this idea of, right? There's the actual practice that was happening at that time, which is separate from the history. And then when you start to talk about things like hip hop or jazz or ragtime or blues, you have actually a separate musical history coming into it, which is uh, also influencing how people think about it. Right. And I wonder if we could talk about how those three sort of interplay, especially in terms of people's conceptions and how the creative process uh, comes about. Well, I think I think those histories really point out exactly how creativity occurs, because if we look at the sort of the emergence of African-American music forms um, in the post in the era after slavery, those musical forms are themselves hybrid. They're, they involve Af- forms of African music, European music. They reflect a mixture of the types of music that slaves were exposed to on plantations and that was a part of the creativity that emerged in that in that in that time period in that context i think um if we look at the european music tradition um if we this i like this idea of the imagined history versus actual history we sort of reimagined the history today in a way that's inconsistent with actual practice if you actually look at actual practice in a lot in in a significant portion of what we consider to be the European art music tradition, some of the practices are very similar to the practices we see in the improvisatory traditions that have emerged um, out of African-American musical tradition. So improvisation, things, uh, you know, reuse of music, um, those kinds of things were, there were similar norms of creativity. Um, You know, not exactly the same. Obviously, we're dealing with very different genres, but we had we, we have some similarities and approaches to creation. So I think what we can do is recognize those commonalities and recognize, um, I, I think, consciously resist the imagined histories and say, well, even though we imagine that classical composers sat in a room and just composed without any reference to existing works, the reality is that's not, that's not what happened. I want it to challenge us to think about the ways in which those assumed or imagined histories may actually hinder future creativity. And I think if we think about it in that light, we might end up with more balance about how do you sort of honor and, you know, permit compensation? How do you honor existing works, but at the same time allow new ones to be created that are inevitably going to be based on those old ones? So I think some, somewhat one way to do that is to think about commonalities between these traditions. We do have a lot of commonalities at different historical time points and relating to improvisation, relating to various forms of borrowing, things from just paying homage or it being influenced by existing works, to actually borrowing, fully borrowing phrases, quoting, um, and, and borrowing l- larger amounts of music. After all, this conception of borrowing too much is not something that's new to hip-hop. As I talk about in the, the, the um, article from J.C. Bob to Hip-Hop, um, Handel was often accused of borrowing too much because he was a, he was a pretty big borrower. I think bar- we need to think about borrowing as, in part, a creative choice about how uh, how a composer may create and to respect those creative choices and recognize that some some types of genres and some types some artists some composers borrow more than others and to recognize that and, and think about how we can encompass the broad range of creativities in our conceptions of copyright and creation. Let's move into what exactly musical borrowing is 
and how copyright deals with it today. Um, so musical borrowing is just when you take something that's existing and use it in some way for your own new creation. And I think most most forms of musical creation are in some ways based on something that exists. So borrowing can be direct. It can be, I'm going to take, I'm going to, in musicology, sometimes people will use the term quotation. I'm going to quote a piece of existing work. It might just be an influence. I might want to pay, pay homage to someone else's work by sort of using something that's reminiscent of the, of the sort of style of the work. Musical borrowing is common across time and genre, and everyone from Mozart to George Michael is implicated. The composer George Frederick Handel is famous for his borrowing, and there has been debate about whether or not he should be considered a plagiarist. Gollywog's Cakewalk by Debussy References Wagner's Tristan and Isolde As Fumi's article on George Gershwin, copyright on Catfish Row, points out, his opera Porgy and Bess was heavily influenced by what he heard while working on Tin Pan Alley. And the signature song Summertime? Has been linked to the spiritual, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Louis Armstrong often inserted short quotations from operas into his improvised performances. The Beatles song Come Together references the Chuck Berry song You Can't Catch Me. And the first major case involving sampling in hip-hop involves Gilbert O'Sullivan's song Alone Again Naturally. And Bismarcky's Alone Again. I'm alone again, naturally. Alone when I asked Fumi if there was a recent case involving influence and copyright that we could discuss, she brought up a case from earlier this year surrounding the 2013 song Blurred Lines. And you know, many people argue that that case will stifle creativity because that case clearly involves borrowing. I'm not going to go too far into the nuances of the case. If you're interested in a detailed discussion, you can find links at the Pod Academy website. But the gist involves similarities between a 1971 Marvin Gaye song, Got to Give It Up, and a 2013 song by Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams called Blurred Lines. Discussions surrounding the case often describe the two songs as having a similar groove or feel. They clearly have been very influenced by Marvin Gaye. And the, the work that, that emerged, the Blurred Lines so song that emerged, is very, it, it is very reminiscent of, of Marvin Gaye's work. The question that I think we, we need to grapple with in copyright, and that we're, this case shows that we're grappling with, is when someone's inspired by someone else, what role should copyright play? And what I think many people would argue and what I would argue is to the extent we take a, a very strict view of, well, this is owned by the person that created it, 
any work that seems somewhat similar is infringing, therefore you have copyright infringement, that's pretty problematic because the reality is a lot of music sounds alike. We only have so many musical notes. And when you start to add things like style within certain musical traditions, a lot of music ends up sounding a lot alike. Um, and some of the things that may distinguish music in people's perception we don't even pretty much we don't take very very much account of in copyright. So um, some of the work of people like Daniel Levitin have pointed out that um, timbre is a major way that people may discern different musical works. Now timbre is not something that's really protectable from a copyright perspective. That's sort of musical color. So if you play the same notes with a tuba versus another instrument, let's say a clarinet, they'll sound very different. So part of that would be timbre, and that's not something we can really take account of. So the problem, what, what I would argue is in copyright, we sort of um, reduce a lot of musical works to their written expression. That written expression, in many respects, is a shorthand, and the extent to which that written expression actually encompasses the musical work, um, the actual piece of music, is going to really vary depending on what kind of musical tradition is involved. And you also talk about, in in your paper, the inconsistency with certain definitions like originality. What does it mean to the courts? I wonder if you could talk yes, about that and as well. I, and I think, yes, I think there we're very influenced by what I would refer to as the museum tradition conception of creativity. So you'll see court cases where people basically say, well, Mozart composed this piece in X number of hours. Someone sat in a closet and composed. And this is sort of the genius in the attic conception of how people create. And the reality is creation is often very collaborative. You're either collaborating directly with people in a music studio or you're collaborating historically with people with works that exist and you're speaking in response to them or you're inspired by them. So if, in fact, you acknowledge that collaboration is the norm in creation, you then have to figure out how do we give people avenue to collaborate. And I would argue that we need to take greater account of musical genre when we're thinking about how music is used, um, because otherwise you're prioritizing certain types of approaches and modalities of creation over others. So I think it's important to be neutral with respect to that. And I think the co complexity of copyright is a, is a big issue. I think copyright conversations, if we were to go back 50 years ago, conversations about copyright were probably in a room with very few people, and all of them knew a lot about copyright. Increasingly, copyright touches on our daily lives uh, of everybody, not just people who are creators, in ways that where that complexity makes it very difficult to know what, what, what can I do and what can't I do? Um, in some avenues, for instance, documentary films, we've seen the emergence of sort of um, industry norms that are, are intended to guide the industry in, in understanding how you can and cannot use um, existing works. But I think it, it, the complexity of copyright makes it very difficult for the average person, certainly, um, to, to understand and to know what is and is not acceptable. There's a lot of gray area. And if you have an environment of aggressive copyright enforcement, that means the, the people who aren't, who aren't either lawyers or who don't have access to very um, savvy lawyers um, may end up you know, being disadvantaged and may end up getting into trouble with legal cases and being sued. Is this the kind of thing that it wasn't, uh, you didn't have this kind of restriction on influence maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago? that you're having more now because of copyright cases, or do you see it as sort of the same throughout recent history? Well, that's, that's a question. I'm not sure I could give a definitive answer. I can give a sense of what my sense is in talking to people, and my, my sense is in talking to people who've been involved in the industry for a while is that, yes, people are much stricter today. We now have the Internet. We have, uh, I have the ability to, to basically hear any, any type of music that's ever been created, and that's something that's, that's fairly new because once in the sort of record era, 
if I didn't actually have the record, if it was no longer for sale, I either would have to go to a used record shop. I, it would be difficult, perhaps, for me to find that work. Today, um, via YouTube and a wide variety of um, websites, musical websites, including streaming websites, like Spotify, I can basically find almost any piece of music I want to hear. So that means that uh, what's available to us is much bigger, and that makes it easier, in a sense, to say that someone may have heard something and copied it, because it's much easier to hear it today. So I think we have we do see more claims. My my guess is we are seeing more aggressive um, enforcement of the rights of, of creators who created music in the past. Um, I, I also wrote a piece about George Gershwin, and he's an interesting example because he died very, very young. He, he died before he was 40. There's some evidence, at least in the bi biographies that people wrote about him, that he was pretty amenable to other people using his work. And obviously, he was a big borrower. If you look at Porgy and Bess, that borrowed extensively from a lot of different African-American musical traditions. Um, his estate is not so amenable to other people borrowing from his work. So I think we do tend to have a, a ramping up of copyright, just because copyright's a lot more important today. Um, and, and obviously, because George Gershwin died very young, his work by necessity is operating under sort of a museum tradition kind of um, ethos, where we're protecting a body of work that's been created that won't be added to because George Gershwin can't create new works. But the thing I found most ironic when I was doing research for that, for that the article I wrote about George Gersh Gershwin and Porgy and Beth, is that I think someone connected to him, I think one of his family members, a nephew or someone, was quoted as saying, well, we really want to control what people do with, with, with his work. After all, someone could make a rap version of Porgy and Bess, and that would be really awful, which is ironic when you look at how much borrowing is embedded in Porgy and Bess itself. So I think you tend to have a, a tendency today where creators who borrowed a lot may not be very amenable to other people and it might, might not actually be the creator anymore. One of the things we've seen is copyright term is a lot longer today. It's life plus 70. So that means inevitably copyright is controlled by estates once the creator dies. And estates are often not sort of musical creators. They, they want to protect a legacy. They may have different interests involved. I, I understand the need perhaps to protect a legacy, but my concern is what does it do to musical creativity? Right. One thing you also mentioned in, in, uh, from JC Bach to hip hop is this conflation of compensation and control. Yes. Is that a little bit we're talking about with control? Yes. I think, I think, yes, because you'll hear an argument, well, we need to, one of the reasons we need to control things is to get compensation. And I'm sympathetic to that, but I think copyright has multiple policy objectives, one of which is to incentivize creation. And incentivizing creation means incentivizing works that are created based on existing works. And that means that um, the compensation argument, I think, cannot be the only argument that we use to make determinations in, in how should we enforce copyright, how should we think about copyright, how should we apply copyright in context of creation. So I would argue that we, I think we do need to think about separating compensation and control. And in my, my article on Porgy and Bess, I suggest that one way to think about it is perhaps we should recognize that estates need compensation and say, okay, you have a right to compensation, but perhaps lesser control than when the creator was alive. Finally, just to kind of wrap things up, are there any specific cases or specific stories about any of the musicians we've talked about that you'd like to share that you think would be of interest or are relevant to the discussion? I just sure. think that the story about Handel, um, George Frederick Handel might be a, an interesting one because he he's obviously an important classical composer. I, I love to sing Handel. Um, he used others' works extensively when he created his compositions. And by the early 19th century, you know, during the 19th century, we had sort of a shift. Um, there was a significant discussion about whether he should be considered a plagiarist. Um, and, and I think that discussion 
is sort of a precursor of some of the discussions we see today about very types of borrowing, including in sampling. And I talk about this in the in the piece from J.C. Bach to Hip Hop. And I think the de- debate about Handel actually became more intensified, more pronounced in the late, 19- late 18th and early 19th centuries, as we saw changing views about originality. And I think his story is one that we can take to the contemporary context and say, you know, the hip hop hip hop artists are not the first artists to encounter this type of reaction to what's what some might perceive as being too much borrowing and that somehow borrowing is not um, original. So I think the thing to keep in mind is, that, again, I think it's important to recognize that there's a spectrum of creativity. And I think we need to recognize those creative choices and not I don't think law should be making choices about what the appropriate mode of creativity is. And I think that's the bottom line. I think law should understand that creative spectrum and take account of it in, in, ter- in terms of thinking about how creativity occurs. And that means that w- would force us to rethink when do we ha- actually have an unauthorized use that should be something like copyright infringement and when we don't. And this touches on, obviously, things in law that um, we would need to rethink and change. But I want to. I my, this work basically says we need to start conceptually because our conceptions, I think, are a bit wrongheaded in certain respects. And I think if we start rethinking this broad spectrum of creativity and go back to this example of Handel, who lived many, many years ago, but who encountered some of the same criticisms we see today, that tells us this is partly an enduring issue and that's not just relevant to some of the genres that we see today as being the, the dominant genres of popular music. If you're interested in anything discussed here, would like to know more about Fumi's work, or are looking for titles to the music mentioned, links are available at the Pod Academy website. Thanks for listening.